Thank you, guys. Thank you to our worship team. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. It's good to see our kids. Thanks for being here, kids and junior hires, middle schoolers. A great time in there. This morning, we're going to carry right on into Exodus chapter 13 in our Way Forward series. And uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying reading the book of Exodus over and over again and, and just sitting in the book and trying to understand what God is saying to me and what God is saying to us. And so my hope is that you're enjoying it as much as I am. And uh, if you're not, man, I'm, I'm still winning because I'm enjoying it. But, but anyways, uh, Exodus chapter 13, I want to pick right up where we left off. I want to thank Pastor Andy for his message last week on the Passover and, and handling that portion of Scripture so well. And so as we're coming on the heels of the, on the, heels of the Passover story, and now we're, we're shifting gears in this book of Exodus, 430 years the children of Israel were enslaved. 430 years. How many of you have been going through something for a long time? How many of you are waiting? You're on the edge of your seat just going, today would be a good day. That was them. And God was faithful. And he was faithful all the way through. And he was doing something of his purposes. I know that we say it. It's, it's not a disclaimer. It's an explanation of God's character. That when we don't understand what he's doing, we say of his character that his ways are not our ways. And so there's a point for the people of God where we trust him. I mean, I'm sure like year one of slavery, it would have been like, God, it'd be great if you deliver me now, let alone year 430. But God was up to something in his big plan. And there's also a role that we play in obedience to God. And how many of you know this to be absolutely true, that obedience to God leads to blessing? How many of you have experienced that before? It's true, right? Even simple, small steps of obedience lead to blessing. It's not, that's not the reason we obey, but it's just the rhythm of God that you do what he asks you to do. He's a father, right? You do what he asks you to do, and, and he blesses. Disobedience to God, what does that lead to? It leads to consequences, right? It leads to, to stuff that we don't want in our life, stuff that we complain about. Sometimes, honestly, stuff that we blame the devil for. Sometimes our disobedience leads to consequences that a good father our God, he disciplines us. And man, we're rebuking the devil all day long when in reality we should be looking at our hearts just going, have I obeyed you? I can remember many seasons in my life where just pleading with God, God, please lead me. Show me what I need to do in this situation. Give me guidance. And so often I can hear the voice of the Lord whispering to me like, what was the last thing I asked you to do? Right? What was the last thing I spoke to you? And, and returning to those simple places of obedience and so there's something within that 430 years of slavery that, that was in part God doing something that we don't understand and also the result of disobedience that prolonged something. And we'll see that same theme go throughout the wilderness experience, right? Uh, a, a small, I forgot the, 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 the travel from the wilderness into the promised land, what it should have been, but it shouldn't have been 40 years, right? 40 years in the wilderness. It would be like, you know, they were doing circles, and there's no doubt they'd be like, I just saw that tree. I just saw that rock formation. Been here before, right? And there was something that in the disobedience, it prolonged it. Why? Because God wanted to teach them something of his character and nature and faithfulness. And oftentimes we say, man, I want to get it right the first time so I don't have to go 40 years. And, and you know what? It is what it is. We'd hope that we would learn those things, but the reality of it is God is faithful all the way through these processes. And so that's where I want to take us to today. I have three things that I want to leave you with in terms of thoughts, and one we've discussed before, and that's the fact that God moves in suddenlies and all of the suddens, right? He moves in suddenlies and all of the suddens. 
430 years of bricks again, bricks again, and now I got to get my own straw and make bricks. This is what the children of Israel were going through. And then all of a sudden, God shows his mighty power, and Pharaoh realizes, okay, I'm not greater than God. Like, that was what the Passover point was all about, that Pharaoh takes a step back and goes, get out of here. And the people of, of, of Egypt were like, let us help you along your way. And, and some of the terminology or the words that's used, are, they were thrust out. They were delivered all at once. So 430 years, and then, poof, you're out of here. And so that's where we pick up the story. But the second thing that, that I want to communicate is, first, God moves in suddenlies and all at once sort of ways. God calls us to actively remember, right? I want you to say that with me, actively remember. We're going to talk a little bit about the festivals and feasts that God had for his, his people. They weren't just big parties, right? Christmas isn't just a big party. These are active remembrances where we have symbolism that helps us to understand, say for Christmas, the greatest gift of all, which is Jesus. And so we exchange gifts. Same for the children of Israel. They had a number of festivals and feasts that reminded them of something very specific. And it all narrows down to one thing. It was to remind them that their God was a strong deliverer and it was always about salvation. It's amazing. My eyes have just opened to some things that I hope you get as excited as me because when I'm excited and you're not excited, I start to get insecure, you know, and then I start cracking jokes and stuff and then I'm like trying to get something from you. But, but the reality of it is God has, is so embedded the gospel from day one all the way through. He had a plan, and the gospel of salvation was there in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way in to the New Testament where we see it clearly. And as the children of Israel, would, we, one would have hoped they could have seen it as clearly as maybe they should have had they understood what God was up to, but that's all speculation. The third thing that we understand about um, Exodus chapter 13 is God leads compassionately and clearly. God leads compassionately and clearly. He leads you as you need to be led. And, and, and there's a contrast to that. I want to preach my last point, but I'm here anyways. That, that, that the, the contrast is the enemy doesn't do that. He lets you fall into your own mess. He lets you have enough rope to hang yourself. That's the enemy. Is He's that way, but God leads clearly and he leads compassionately. And so we'll, we'll look at that hopefully if we get to the end of Exodus chapter 13. So are you ready for this? You all buckled up? All right, here we go. So carrying on from the tail end of, of Exodus chapter um, 12, let's, let's go back a little bit. Starting in verse 33, this is the idea of suddenly or all at once. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. You get that idea? They were urgent. Let's get these guys out of here. Why? Uh, for they said, we shall all be dead. And so the people took their dough before it was leavened and, and the kneading bowls and bound it up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for gold and silver and jewelry and for clothing. I wonder what that looked like. Like, I, honestly, have you ever, like, hey, I'm sorry about all that stuff that our God did. You know, I know we're all mourning, but can I get your gold? Can I get, like, your clothes? And we're, we're out of here, and, you know. Or if it was just offered to them, I don't know. Maybe you don't think that way. I was just curious what that looked like. But it looked like something of war. Because in the end, we realized that there was victory happening because of the terminology that we read. It says they got all this stuff, which was the bounty or the spoils of war, and the Lord had given to the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked for. And then read that last sentence. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. 
It wasn't insult upon injury. It was the result, and I think Pastor Andy brought that point out towards the end of his sermon, that, that it, wasn't, it wasn't insult upon injury. It was the result of victory in the war. Like, we won, so we get all your stuff, and we're out of here. So it helps the reader understand God was up to so much more. And, and the, the more was that he was showing his superiority, his sovereignty, that he was in charge. And if that worked then, doesn't it work now? That, that when Mary, you know, says to the angel, how will this be? And the angel resp- replies, that with the Lord, nothing is impossible. And we've talked about this as a theme so many times, but there are so many impossibles in our world today. Like so many head-scratching things, like how could that ever be fixed? How could that ever be remedied? How could we ever get back to what we knew was normal? How, how, how? And as you, as you have the great minds of our, of our nation talking together, it sounds like a whole bunch of nonsense. Because it just sounds like, well, we, this could happen or that could happen. Or it's just infighting of, of you should do this or you should have done that or, or opportunism or whatever else. And you mix all that up in a blender and you and I as normal people step away and go, this is impossible. But not with God. For the children of Israel for 430 years, just looking at like the oppression that they were under, this is impossible, but not with God. And so I think for the reader that they're intended, and for us as the people of God, we're intended to look at God as the God who can do anything, anytime, who with him, all things are possible, certainly sending Jesus into the world. And so the suddenlies occur. Now, um, there's a, a, a word that we often hear, and I, I started to think in the Bible of, of suddenly moments, right? And this word that often gets translated, it gets translated suddenly or it gets translated behold, right? Behold. And, and behold is like a, a, a literary device when you're reading the Bible, and it's, it, it's there for you to go, hey, look, fix your eyes on this because the story's about to take a turn, Right? That's kind of what it is. And let me give you an example. In Luke chapter 2, the shepherds are in their field doing what shepherds do. Right? They're tending the sheep, and they're faithful, hardworking guys, and they're out there on a day. And behold, right? behold, the angel of the Lord comes to them and says, hey, don't be afraid. Why did the angel of the Lord say that? Because if you were out tending the sheep at night and an angel showed up, you would be afraid. Right? You ever seen an angel? Some of you probably have. I mean, I'm sure it's a fearful thing. And so for them, it was this reality of, ooh, ah, don't be afraid, for I bring to you this good news, great tidings of, of great joy. And then there's the behold, and then there's the suddenly. And then suddenly, like if it wasn't enough to see an angel, then suddenly you see a host of angels. How many is a host of angels? A lot. And they're filling the sky, and they're singing the songs of wonder, like we sang, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to whom those his favor rests. What a moment. But the moment was more than just a a Christmas story or a Christmas song that we sing. It was the turning of a tide. It was a behold, because everything's different from this point forward. Suddenly, after all these years of waiting, now there's something different. So so when something is different, you got to get your eyes. The behold is to get your eyes fixed upon the thing that they're talking about. And for the people of God and in the Bible... The translation of that word is to to get your eyes fixed on him. Like, look to him now. And we know this to be true, that when our eyes are on the Lord, in truth, when we know who he is, it shapes the way that we make daily decisions. When our eyes are on the king of glory, when our eyes are on the one who is all-powerful, I would tend to think that when we're really doing that, our fear level begins to diminish. 
right? Our need for self-preservation begins to diminish. When our eyes get off the Lord, the, same, the opposite occurs. Our fear level begins to rise. We're not on looking to him, so we have to protect ourselves, make sure that we're squared away. Our fear level begins to rise, and when that begins to rise, it, it, it definitely shadow, it, it casts a shadow on the way that we see everyone else around us. It becomes a very selfish thing. And you see that happening in our world today. And so the behold is something's about to change, so get your eyes on the one who's changing them. Uh, there was a, a second suddenly that rang true for me in, in Acts chapter 2, the suddenly of the spirit coming in the room like a mighty rushing wind. That's crazy. Is it crazy? Maybe I should slow down. A room filled with worshipers, not like a mega church, a room of, of, of a just a group of, of family, people who, who had been through it, people who had just watched the one they were following, Jesus crucified, and they were still reeling from that. And then the news of his resurrection, and then he comes back and hangs out with them for a while, and then he ascends to the Father. Like, this is a lot of stuff to process. And so they're all together, and they're convinced. If you would ever be convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, they're convinced. And they're together in one place, and they're worshiping him. And when you're, when you're together in unity, and when your eyes and your behold is fixed on the one who can change things, stuff happens, right? And what happens then was this, this event of a mighty rushing of wind, and then the tongues of fire, that are this divided tongue that rests upon people, giving them the supernatural ability to communicate, the filling of the Holy Spirit. It was a suddenly moment on the heels of a lot of tragedy and difficulty, but the one that, um, in the suddenlies that stuck out to me is one of my favorite stories from Acts in the early church um, when, when Paul and Silas are arrested for preaching the gospel. You know, isn't it interesting that um, we used to tell these stories like um, thinking of places like China or different places where you could be arrested for preaching the gospel. And now we, we, we hear these stories and you go, there might be an application for me in my own country in this moment. That, that my speaking the truth about who God is could have strong implications like never before. And so this becomes more practical than ever. It's not like fairy tale stuff. It's not like, oh, for those poor other people. Paul and Silas are preaching the gospel. They're just sharing the faith and they're, they're arrested and they're thrown in prison. And, and, and I love this. You've heard it. I mean, if you've been in church any length of time, you've heard it preached. If not, this is crazy that at midnight, Paul and Silas are... Uh, likely in stocks, right? They're not just like, um, you know, in the detention area outside playing handball or something. They're like, they're, they're like locked in and it's midnight and they're praying and singing hymns to God. Like, that's just awesome. Why? Because I think they understood the suddenly concept. I think they understood the behold, like something's probably about to change if I get my eyes on the one who can change things. And so for them, their perspective is different. It's not their fear level isn't up here they're, they're, or wherever it should be. Their fear level's down here, and their, their attention is towards God. And so they're like, well, let's sing to him. Let's have a Bible study, you know. <laughs> I remember it says in such and such, like, glory in the highest. And Silas couldn't sing that good, so he's trying to harmonize. It was a little awkward. <laughs> and, then, and then other people are listening, but they can sense the beauty of that moment. And then it goes on and it says, and suddenly 
there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately the doors were open. I love this part. And everyone's bonds were fastened. Like, that's amazing that that suddenly moment didn't just impact the two dudes that were singing. Everybody around them got free. And so when you think of the way forward and you think of what Exodus is about and you think about what we're supposed to remember, we're supposed to remember that our God has a strong hand. It's not too short. It can reach down and save. It's mighty to save. And it's not just for who we, like everyone thinks they're God's favorite if they're following him. And, you know, it's like, it's not just, it's for everyone that this salvation, what a great gift that's offered to all humanity. And if there's ever a time where we could say, man, we need it, it's right now. By the way, 20 years ago, it would be the same thing. And 20 years before that and before that. We are sinners in need of salvation. And God is faithful and he's mighty to save. And so he suddenly um, reminds us of that. And I pray that like that, that Advent expectancy would settle over you. That, and I'm thinking about this for myself, that there's so many situations that I walk into that I'm already, I've already determined the outcome. I've uh, been here before, done that a sort of cynical approach that I can have to a conversation or to an environment. And I'm praying that my, my attitude would shift, that, that I would bring light into a situation and not a bad experience, that I'd bring gratitude, that I would be able to, um, to be what I'm called to be. And I, I know that's the heart that you have as well. And so the expectancy, suddenly, we're, a, we're the people of God. We're supposed to be living on the edge of our seat. That we're not supposed to be settled into this world, but we're on the edge of our seat. And by the way, we're not on the edge of our seat going, oh, come, come rescue us from all this and we get to go to heaven and be with you forever. Like, yes, that is it. That's, that's what gives us ultimate security. But the edge of our seat is what can I do to obey you? Who can I serve? Who can I love? Who can I share the gospel with? And I got to admit to you, there are so many times in my life where I waste time and I don't live on the edge of that seat. And I'm not talking... Um, living on the edge of that seat, like I'm saying this in some kind of guilt way, I'm saying like joyfully, like living on the edge of our seat, like that giddy kid that's playing sports for the first time that's like, put me in, coach, put me in. Come on, I can't wait. I don't want to sit on the bench. I want in. That's the joy that we get to have in the heart attitude that we have before God. And so, um, yeah. The second part, consecration and remembering. So as you read through the Old Testament, you're going to get a lot of detail uh, of stuff, and again, you get uh, historical context. God's doing something in a moment in time that might not directly translate into today, but the concepts are there for us to understand and unpack. And certainly in, in this, um, this next part of remembering, and it's not just a, hmm, I want to remember, I hope I remember, but it's these active things that we do, like we participate in the remembrance, and that's what he was doing in the children of Israel, setting them up for full sensory experiences so that they wouldn't forget how good God is. I can say I've been in certain situations before, whether it's like a, a, a moment where you just sense the, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and something remarkable is happening. Like maybe for you, it's been at a, a concert or an event or something where God's being glorified. I, I know uh, some people had a chance to go to Maverick City recently and just seeing, especially without people being able to gather, now seeing thousands of people worshiping God and just honoring him. Like there's a moment there that you kind of want to take a capture. You just want to go peek, not just with your iPhone, but with your mind. And I remember many times in my life just sitting there going, God, I never want to forget this. I want to live in the reality of what you're doing right now. 
And I think that that's embedded in us as the people of God to be active in our, our remembrance. Um, there's a verse I love in the, the first part of it in, in Zephaniah um, chapter 4 and verse 17. It says that the Lord our God is with us, but it declares of his character that he's mighty to save. Everybody say mighty to save. He's so powerful. He's more powerful than anything we can imagine. And whatever that is that you can imagine, he's more powerful than that. And so he's telling the children of Israel the salvation story. And and we've been studying in the men's group here in the mornings um, the book of Ephesians. And Paul talks about the, the, the gospel as a mystery, right? The mystery that's being unfolded or, or told to the Gentiles, that it's not just for one group of people. The Hebrew people were there to be an example, to be a light to the world. But as the grace of God and the heart of Jesus from the very beginning was to save all mankind, Paul talks about this mystery of the gospel. And, and does anyone enjoy a good mystery? Right? Why do you enjoy the good mystery? Because it keeps you engaged all the way through. It's not a slow movie or a slow story or whatever it is. You're looking for clues along the way. And it keeps the reader or the watcher or the viewer, it keeps you engaged. And if you begin to read the Bible that way, you see that God is laying out clues. And this clue is just so remarkable. The clue of God's salvation story. So um, all that build up to go to, to Exodus chapter 13. It says in verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, wherever is the first to, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast is mine. That's a big statement. Somehow firstborns, firstborn males to God was a big deal. And that, that's, giving, that's, that's been put upon them that all these are mine. And then he unpacks what that means for that to be his. Verse 3, then Moses said to the people, remember this day which you came from Egypt out of the house of slavery. Now there's this repeated phrase here, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when, when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. Don't you love how the Bible repeats itself? Why do you think it does that? Because we need to remember this stuff, right? It just said it twice in one sentence. No leavened bread shall even be, um, shall be seen with you in all your territory. And listen, this is such a key part. And tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. See, these events or these feasts and festivals uh, were, were meant as a teaching point so that one generation would hear from the other the faithfulness of God, the salvation story of deliverance from slavery and into a promised land. And I love that, um, that there are traditions that families have. I love that there are those moments where um, a patriarch or a matriarch will, will, will pass on to younger generations stories, whether it's their own family's history, but more than anything, the importance of who God is, what God has done, 
and, and being in touch with those stories. And so um, the, the next part of this is saying in verse 9, And it shall be a sign to you on your hand as it is a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, you hear that for the second time, that the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute in its appointed time from year to year. So these two you know, takeaways. First, the, the purpose of the feast, again, is, to, um, is for the Hebrew people to have an active reminder of what God's done and to tell their, the, tell their stories, truthful stories to the generations that follow so that the culture doesn't lose over time the remembrance of who God is and what he's done. And then secondly, the repeated phrase that we have this strong hand of the Lord and this strong hand is mighty to save. So the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread achieves that. But then we get into the detail about what it means for the firstborn male to be given as unto the Lord. Uh, I want to kind of cut to the chase because as you seek to bring the Old Testament and the New Testament together, if you look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, it declares that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. That is a significant title to him in the, in the overall scheme of this whole Bible. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Secondly, um, John's declaration of Jesus, what does he say? Behold, remember? Behold. What does behold mean? Get your eyes fixed somewhere else because the story's about to change. Everything's about to be different. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you have a firstborn and you have a lamb that's associated with Jesus. You already know this stuff, but as you plug this into what's being told to you now and you think he was, he was setting them up so that they would always be thinking about firstborns, they would always be thinking about lambs. And then he's going to talk now about what redemption looks like and uncleanliness. Are you still with me? Did you hit the point of the sermon where you're like thinking about lunch? Be honest. Okay. It'll be there for you. This is where, this is, this is the stuff right here. Verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, which they weren't good people, and that land was not, the land was awesome, but they're going to have to fight for every inch of it. They were savage. And he, um, when he brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to your fathers that he shall give you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first opens of the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males are the Lord's. And every firstborn a donkey um, of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Okay, be honest. When you're reading the Bible sometimes and you read something like that, do you just kind of go, okay, skip to the promise for today. I've seen, like, I have a great devotional that I'm reading right now, and I've read several different devotionals through the years, but rarely have I seen the donkey passage in there. Because sometimes we read them and we just go, what is it? And often we're guilty of just passing it by, but this fits into something much greater. First of all, if you are a Hebrew child growing up, or if you're a Hebrew livestock guy, whatever that would be, a, a shepherd or whatever, or, or you're a, a dad or you're a granddad, every expectancy of new birth, you're thinking, is it going to be a male? 
You're always thinking about it. It doesn't matter what it is. If this is the first mare that has ever um, given birth, you're thinking, is this going to be a male or a female? I'm th you're thinking in terms of that. You follow me? This is, all, this is what they have to do all the time. Now, the donkey is brought up. The donkey is a beast of burden, you know, that donkeys are associated. You ever hear of any other stories of donkeys in the Bible? You have donkeys that talk. The Bible's crazy, right? Um, uh, it's not a Narnia kind of thing. Like, ba basically, I, I, I'm getting way off right now. The talking donkey thing was not in the sermon. Now I'm in trouble. Look it up. Fascinating story. Jesus. You know, we don't know for sure, but the nativity scene says that Mary came in on a, on a donkey. Maybe we do. I can't remember what the account is, but there, she rides in on a beast. We know for sure that, that Jesus comes in to, um, to Jerusalem uh, riding on the foal of a donkey. So there's this association with donkeys that we kind of see Jesus and donkeys. But the reality of it is, is the donkey is an unclean animal. Right, an unclean animal. In Hebrew culture law, uh, kosher law, that there are things that are clean and things that are unclean. Things that you can eat and things you can't eat. I don't know anyone that's uh, curious about uh, donkey meat, so that's I'm cool with that being unclean. But 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 the, the the thing is, your association now. Okay, remember these things are there for your active remembrance. Your culture associates something male is to be given to the Lord, a firstborn. And then this new thing, that if it's unclean, it needs to be, what, redeemed. So if you have an unclean donkey, you have to then provide a lamb. Interesting choice. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You have, you have to offer a lamb in place of the donkey. Why? Even because the donkey is unclean, it's still valuable to you. And so you produce a lamb, you sacrifice that firstborn lamb to the Lord in the place of the donkey so that you get to what? Redeem the donkey, making it clean for you before the Lord. It's amazing. Come on, that's like, whoa. It's not about the donkey and about the lamb. It's about salvation. It's about something of a mystery being embedded into a culture for all time for us to go, oh, there's something more going on. So that when the gospel comes and Jesus comes and you hear of the firstborn of all creation and you hear, behold, the lamb, your mind is blown and you realize God had a plan from the very, very, very beginning. Secondly, um, the redemption of the... Oh, and then by the way, if you don't have a lamb or if you choose not to do it, your only other option for your firstborn donkey is to break its neck. And breaking its neck kills it, clearly, and it also illustrates the reality that the wages of uncleanliness is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. And this isn't just, wow, God was weird or the Old Testament's weird. It's put together what you're thinking when you're, when you're a kid growing up in that, that you always see those things happening unless people were not obeying the law and saying, okay, we'll sneak this away or whatever else. Being embedded in your mind that that what is unclean must be redeemed by what is clean. And if you can't redeem what is unclean with something clean, the wages of that is death. And you see that reality actively lived out in front of you. You get a little nervous then as you read the next part because it says that the firstborn of every man, every son shall be redeemed. What does that mean? Well, clearly God does not advocate for human sacrifice. And why I say that is not to be 
um, gross or anything, but to say that the Canaanites did. The land where they were going into, part of their, their archaic, just sort of barbaric worship was that the, the Baal, their, their top god, one of the, the end-all things that if, if the land wasn't doing well or there wasn't fertility or you wanted just the blessing of, of bounty in your life, like you needed something, the, the, the end-all sacrifice that you would make was you sacrifice your firstborn child to Baal. And upon doing that, Baal will give his favor to you, to your land, to your womb, or to anything else. This was the land that they were coming into. And so what they were called to do was to stand in contrast to that. Obviously, there was no, um, it wasn't okay. It was, it was an, God calls it an abomination. The taking of a human life, the taking of a child's life. It is not just, oh, that's sad. It is an abomination to God. So now you have a, a firstborn child. So your firstborn child comes. And the firstborn child is redeemed, as we see in the book of Numbers, by five shekels of silver. Right? So five shekels of silver. So you have a firstborn boy. You redeem by giving to the Lord five shekels of silver. Unless that boy is a Levite. That boy is a Levite and he's a firstborn. He's a priest. So then he is consecrated as unto the Lord. And so these are, these are just things that are built in. And why does this matter to you in 2021, almost 2022? Can you believe that? I say, bring it on, 2022. Um, it helps us to remember that there's a price to pay. That, that in the salvation story in, in Galatians, it says that, that Jesus paid the price for our freedom. You see what I'm saying? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus pays the price for our salvation. And so when I looked at these two things, man, I began to, um, to really, I don't, I don't know the, the, the word, but there was like a, a holy kind of conviction and, and concern and... Um, I wish I could capture the word other than it was like a moment of awe when I think about salvation, when I think about God's plan. It was a moment of awe because I've been in church ministry for like 20 years now, and so I've seen some things that are phases and trends, right? Did you know there are trends in churches? And so it's like if, 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 if there's something that we'll be focused on, you know, maybe, maybe one trend could be a focal point on self-help, right? Self-help isn't bad all in and of itself, but but self-help can be its own religion in and of itself, and we can sort of Christianize it with certain scriptures and be like, man, you can have an awesome, pain-free, perfect life, just do X, Y, and Z, and if, by the way, something bad happens, it's on you, not God. You're probably not holy enough, you're not praying enough, you didn't raise your hands high enough in worship, whatever it is, there's, there's sort of that trend. There was the, the trend of, of kind of entertainment, you know, like people won't come to church unless it's awesome, so you need... You need a fog hog. Because if you bring a little smoke up in the room, you get the light thing, it'll look sick, you know. And then why, why should the world have all the good music and all the good stuff? Let's, let's, let's get foggy with it. Let's do some lasers. And, um, and like, if you got a good artist, maybe they could do some art. So none of that, again, started from an unholy place. There was good creativity. But what happens, maybe one place is showing this creativity. Another place goes, oh, my gosh, there's like 5,000 people that go to that church. Where did you get that machine? And can we hire your artist to paint? And, and like, the, the laser guy now, who trained him? Because we just want tasteful laser work, you know? So, so 
you have like that trend. Then you have like the trend of, you know what, no, my church is awesome because my church cares about the issues or cares about Murica or whatever it is. Like you, 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 you <laughs> sorry, I tried to throw that one in quick. But, but so I'm there for that church or, or, or my church really just preaches the Bible, you know, and there's just like trends. And so for people in ministry and for pastors, you're trying to like, go, what, which one works, you know, and they actually have seminars and you get unlimited amount of emails on grow your church today, you know, like, like, are you still stuck doing transparencies? You know, like, remember back in the day where you had the um, photocopy thing and you flip it over, but if you're really good at it, you like slide it, you know? <laughs> Again, this, none of this was in the sermon. This is like all free right now, but it is getting to a point. I'm not saying this to be cynical. I'm saying I was guilty of going, oh, yeah, what would work, you know? Sat in some meetings where we thought about some things and don't make people sit too long. Um, maybe make, don't let them sit too short either. Make sure the service time is right when it needs to be. You know, consider other things like that. Make sure worship is just the right amount of time, right amount of volume. That's a huge deal. Uh, make sure the decibels are correct. Uh, make sure you have a good balance between men and women that are leading worship. You, know, you just get into all kinds of things. And none of them could be bad in and of themselves. But I want to tell you what some of those things are. They're side issues that don't really matter. There are all kinds of side crusades that don't really matter. Now, now, now hear me out. There are some righteous causes. There are some things that need to be looked at. There are some, some things. But... The primary thing, the main thing for the church is this, the gospel. The main thing for the church is the salvation story that has been embedded throughout the Bible that we're the carriers of. Not, not just me, but we. Like our job, our, our role, our joy, why we're on the edge of our seat is like, who can we share Jesus with? Because it matters. It doesn't just matter to get more seats. Like, it's awesome. What's up with Easter? Like, Easter is just full. You feel great on Easter. Pastors are, like, high-fiving when they see each other at lunch. How many people did you have? Like, you just preach better, you know? Everything's so something great about that. There's not, like, but the gospel, the, what, what we're on the edge of our seat for is not filling a building, although that's wonderful. And, and oftentimes the, fruitful, the result of fruit. We're saving people's lives. We're saving people's lives. Like, what if we really believe this is a life and death thing? Like, who told you about Jesus? Are you super grateful for them in your life? Who, who modeled Christ to you? And this isn't a guilt trip. I'm, uh, please, don't ever serve God as a result of, of a guilt trip. That's a short-lived thing. That's a slow, I mean, a quick burnout. And this isn't that at all. This is just a... What are we doing? Uh, how much time do I have? Okay. So I have this great treasure, and I don't know if Carla's watching, but I have this great treasure of a video that we took of, of her husband, Jan. If you don't know Jan and Carla, wonderful pillars in our church. Um, Jan, Dutch Indonesian, went home to be with the Lord several years ago, um, was a prisoner of war in the Burmese Death March. Uh, one of the most loving, joyful, kind people that you would ever meet. Didn't harbor bitterness against the Japanese who were the ones that tortured him and made his life a living hell. He was joyful. He was amazing. And he tells this story of um, 
being captured as a prisoner of war, sent to Thailand, and, and then on that, that um, death march of building the railroads, that's, that was the goal of the prisoners, was to lay the tracks, the ties, and you were together with a group of just a handful of men. And by the way, they didn't need to like put a cage around you. You're in the middle of the jungle. There is nowhere for you to go. And so you can't run anywhere, um, but you got to stay with your guys. They don't feed you. He said they literally would give uh, a, a, a tablespoon, I think he said, of rice. That was the meal. Everything else you're on your own for. So you have this horrendous, horrendous situation. And he tells a story of, um, you know, they, they would have one guy would fell a tree. The other guys would come and get it. People were pounding, pounding rail um, ties and so forth. Somehow, he gets separated from his group. And he's separated from his group, and he is lost. Now, I'll tell you one thing. It's one thing to be, like, lost on the freeway in L.A., or to be lost, you know, you're a kid, you can't find your mom at the mall or something. That's a horrible feeling. But lost in a canopy of a, of a, of a jungle, and knowing that there's, there's just, like, there, if you're found, you're going to be in big trouble. Anyways... He starts to panic, and he said he just took off running. And he said, when I took off running, he said it was like for hours. So now he doesn't know which way he's going. And he can't hear anything. He can't see anything. And the point of the story is that he said he had a moment, and his story is so remarkable, but his, um, he grew up in poverty. His grandmother raised him, and she taught him how to live off the land, and she taught him how to navigate and one of the things she said to him when he was a child, if you're ever lost in the jungle, find a fixed point and walk in a straight line. Now, I don't know if that's a Bear Grylls thing or not, but it worked for, for Jan. Like, he, he remembered that. He found a, a point, and he began to walk in a straight line. And as he walked in a straight line, like, by, as the sun was beginning to set, he, he found another group of Australian prisoners of war hopped onto their uh, bus or whatever, got back to his camp and snuck in. And he, he was trying to sneak back in. He was caught. He wasn't killed, but he was, he was punished for his um, showing up late, and he made his way back. Now, I've been thinking about that story all week because especially about the part of when you, can't, when you have no perspective with the, the canopy of the jungle over, you don't see the sky, you don't see anything, you feel lost. And I feel like for us as Christians, we have like a jungle around us of, of, of issues, of side things, of things we like, things we don't. And some are good, some are frivolous, some are important, some are unimportant, but they're all around. And I think sometimes we as the church, now I'm just going to say this in a general way, I'm not heaping, again, guilt on anyone, I can say this about me. Sometimes we're like, well, I'm lost, and we just start running. We start running towards the next, I think there might be something over there, I think there might be something over there. But I think what God's called you and I to is so very simple. It's been embedded in Scripture from the very beginning that our, we're supposed to get in, a, in a, a straight line. And that straight line is the gospel. It's the gospel. That, that we, we are about that. And as we're about becoming those who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the reality of God the Father sending his Son to the earth, the eye-opening awe and sometimes awkward conversation to point out the fact that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that we don't have to find ways to do it, um, yes, lovingly, yes, creatively, but, but just it has power in and of itself. It's the power to unlock uh, death and, and, 
or unlock you know, the, the keys to, to life, and, uh, is what I meant to say, and, and leaving us from a life of death. The Bible puts it so much better than I can. Hebrews chapter 2. This, this verse has been just ringing around in my mind. And, and maybe a takeaway that you might have from today is, God, help me not to get lost with side things, that they become my primary thing. The gospel is our primary thing always. The side things sometimes he'll call us into as a result of the gospel. By the way, our total concerns for moral issues are, are, are rightful concerns. The world is going crazy. It's no mystery. It's in the Bible that it will, that, that men will call evil good and good evil. But you know what the solution is? It's Jesus and the gospel. It's salvation that changes morality. And so those side issues that we have, if we're chasing after fixing the side issue and not chasing after the gospel, we're running in circles in the jungle. Does this make any sense? Okay. Now this is very, um, this verse in Hebrews chapter 2, in verses 1 through 4, I'm going to read it right now. This is for the church. This was for the Hebrew people who had this culture embedded in them. This is for you. This is for me. This is for your neighbors. It says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. We are prone. Then that, that old hymn, I've said it so many times from up here. We are prone to wonder, right? We are prone to drifting. Not the car kind, you know. That kind's cool. The drift meaning off getting so far off course, chasing other things, side crusades, things that that aren't what we're meant for. It says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation of disobedience received its just punishment, listen to this, how can we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The salvation which was announced by the Lord, which was confirmed by us who heard him, God testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. I'm just going to let that settle over you, and and my prayer is that it'll do in your spirit what it did in mine as I begin to ponder my own life. How can I neglect so great a salvation? This is something that I, I believe that for, for those who have called upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. But I have to also say in, in moments like this, I never want to take for granted that I'm quote-unquote preaching to the choir. But that these are moments where um, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ should be often and clearly conveyed that there is a pathway to salvation, and, and salvation is real. Once you have experienced the, the, the salvation of Jesus Christ in your life, once you have come to the awareness that whatever else you've tried and wherever, whatever thing that you have searched out has left you with a sense of there's something missing, and when you turn to Jesus and when you're able to see that there is something unclean about you, that your sin has a consequence, and that the redemption of that sin comes in a perfect spotless lamb, which is Jesus. Then you begin to read the Bible and you go, oh, this wasn't those crazy Christians' idea or their self-help solution. This was, this was a truth embedded in Scripture for thousands of years and made alive in Jesus Christ. 
My prayer is that um, if, you're, if you're searching, that you'll open your heart to Jesus, that you'll open your heart to salvation, and that you also maybe feel a little awkward in this moment, not because I'm trying to make you feel awkward, but because the awkwardness is, is like a conviction. There's a truth that you feel going on inside of you, like, oh, I don't like what he's saying, but it's, I think it might be true. And that we love people enough to engage in conversations that we, we wouldn't be so worried if they don't like us. We'd be more worried that we're loving them. Let me say that again. That when we're engaging in conversation that we wouldn't be so worried if that person doesn't like us. But we would be more worried that we don't love them. That's, that, that, that's what we're called to do. And if we're preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel in love, genuine concern, because we don't want to neglect so great a salvation, we ourselves don't want to drift, nor do we want to see our loved ones drift, then, boy, I'll tell you what, the church will be doing what the church is supposed to do. And when the church does what the church is supposed to do, God builds it. God builds it. It's, a, it, it's amazing who God uses. You know, you look at, at, at Christian history, and he just uses those that are willing to do what he's called them to do. And he brings the increase. The gates of hell don't prevail against the church. When we try to build churches, it's just embarrassing. Come on. It's embarrassing. Sometimes I get embarrassed when I'm around Christians, myself included. Because it's like we have our own terminology. We, we're trying to be extra hip or cool. You know, hey, we get it. You know, all we're focused to, to, to be a part of is ambassadors of Christ, and as we do that, he builds his church. The last and final point um, I'll leave with you, because I think it is important as we wrap up chapter 13, and then we'll, we'll end here with a bit of worship and some time to ponder a lot of words, is in Exodus 13, 17. It says, when, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of land of the, Phil- the land of the Philistines, although that was near. And God said, lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. But God let the peop- led, excuse me, led the people around by way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up, and, um, up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, and Joseph had made uh, the sons, he had made them solemnly say that, swear, saying, um, I, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. That was the promise of God from a lot of years ago that they were holding in those bones. In verse 20, and they moved on from Succoth, and that's a funny word. Um, and they, they moved on from Succoth, maybe, and encamped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day, and a pillar of cloud led them along the way by night, and the pillar of fire gave them light that they might travel um, by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night um, did not depart before the people. Deliverance came, out, came on them like a storm. They were even thrust out. Um, okay, so as we, as we um, look at this last verse, there was something that came to my mind very clearly in this last passage, that, and I said it in the beginning of, of the three things I wanted to convey to you, is the third was that, that God leads compassionately and, and he leads clearly, right? And I won't ask you to raise your hand, but in a room this size with any group of people, there's obviously us seeking God for direction in our lives. So many people are saying, God, where should I live? 
Um, do I need to be looking at another place? Uh, what should I be doing for work? Is this the person that you have for me to spend the rest of my life with? There's relational things. There's uh, work things. There's um, life stuff. Would you agree with me? And, and I want to say that I believe wholeheartedly that when it comes to, to guidance, that God has a clear direction for us. We're the ones that are, are um, wandering in the wilderness. He's like, I know what I want you to do. It's very clear to him. Sometimes we wish he would, he would make it easier on us, but part of those laps that we do help us to get closer to him. But God has a clear plan, and, and his plan is faithful. It's faithful day, and it's faithful night. Psalm 121 says, uh, I look to the mountains. Where does my help come from? You know this one? My help comes from you, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. It says that the one who watches over you, um, watches over Israel, watches over you, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. You're never bothering God. You're never going to wake him up. The Lord is the shade at your right hand, and he's not going to let your foot, you know, fall. And, and so these, these concepts of who God is are, are not just like uh, academic, they're reality. God has faithful leadership for your life. Take courage in that. Find peace in that. If you don't know what you're meant to do in this moment, uh, try not to run crazy in the jungle. Remember that analogy? Try not to run crazy. Just focus on Jesus and keep doing what you're called to do. And if you don't know what that is, the calling for all of us is the understanding, the preaching, the living out of the gospel on a daily basis. And as you do that, he is there day and night. He's there to clearly lead you and to clearly guide you. And so um, there's so much more I could say about this, but I don't want to overdo it. I want to invite the worship team to come back, and and I want to give us just a moment to respond to the Lord. I want to give us a moment to respond to the, the great salvation that he offers to all mankind to respond to our, our role in the salvation story, meaning what we see um, as what, how we live on the edge of our seat. You know, do we live on the edge of our seat looking to love people or, or, or cautiously hoping that they will like us? Um, I, I want us to just find a, a new place of, of revisiting the simple truths of, of what we're meant to be and who we're called to be. And then finally, I want to honor God um, for his compassionate leading in our lives and the fact that he does it clearly and he does it faithfully. And so um, if you would stand with me, and um, you can sit if you want. I don't know why I said stand with me, but if you'd like to sit, you can do that. And as we sing this song, and maybe we just kind of prepare our hearts for this moment in worship, um, remember the first point was suddenly... Remember, the first point was behold and all at once. And there is absolutely no reason why God couldn't do a suddenly, suddenly right now. You know, I think one of the reasons that we don't see him do a lot of suddenlies is because we're not on the edge of our seat hoping and waiting for it. We're on to the next thing. We're in that sort of canopy of a jungle looking to find the next thing. We're ready to go. But before you're ready to head out, behold, behold. Your story is about to change. Behold, Jesus is present. Behold, get your eyes on him. Behold, salvation is true and real. And if you guys would lead us. Pat, maybe you can dim our lights a little bit so that we can kind of get in that place of, of worship this morning.
your hands. God, I want to ask you that you would impart to us just some of your heart. Lord, if you gave us all of your heart, we would vaporize. We couldn't handle how deeply you feel, how much you love. But God, the parts that we can, Lord, would you just give us your heart, Lord. Give us your heart for your word. Give us your heart for the gospel for salvation. God, thank you for the big picture of this story that runs such a theme throughout the Bible that we are trapped in slavery and we can't get out and the struggle is so very real and the only way out is through a strong and mighty hand, through a deliverer and all of a sudden you show up with your deliverance, with your power and Lord, you redeem our lives and you transform us. God, we, as we hold our hands out, we allow you to place in these hands the things that are important to you. We confess that there is a lot that's important to us. 
And if our, our eyes are on all the trees and the canopy around us, we can't walk in that straight line and allow you to build our lives and to build our church. And so would you reestablish your priorities in us? God, I, I stand before you asking for that. And I confess to you, there's so many things that I'm certain are not on your priority list, but they're on mine. And most of all, your top priority is the love that you have for all mankind, that you would send your son Jesus into this world as a pure and spotless lamb, the firstborn of all creation, to bear all the weight of sin upon his shoulders, to suffer and to die on a cross, to be raised to life again, and then to give to us the Holy Spirit to bring that message of truth to those who are lost, that they might find salvation, to bring the message of truth to those that are held in captivity, that they might find the strong deliverer, the strong hand of God to set them free. Set us free, God. Lord, help us to not neglect this great salvation. Help us to not drift, God. Help us to not add to the gospel our own stuff. But give us fresh eyes to see. Give us new ears to hear. Give us the power of the Holy Spirit that we might be effective bearers of truth, that we, as you said, Jesus, would be the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill that shouldn't be hidden. Bless your people today. Remind them of your suddenlies. Remind them of your faithfulness. Remind them of your compassion and your care that you could have led in one way, but it wasn't good for the people, so you led in another. And the way that you led was much longer than the easy route. Remind us that that's kind of how you work, God. And give us that reassurance that you're always with us. Encourage your people today. Strengthen them. Bless them, I pray, as they make their way forward. And I ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. God bless you.